Well, hey, good morning, everyone. It is good to have you all here, whether you're joining us in person or online. I'm James, one of the pastors on staff, and this is the third week of a series that we've been doing called Better Together, where we are talking about some things in our lives that we are designed to be better with. First week, Mike talked about how we are better with Jesus. Second week, he talked about how we are better when we serve together. And today, we're talking about how we are better with community. But before we do that, let's take a little time and pray with each other. Lord, thanks for this chance to gather and dig into your word, to sing songs in your praise, and to spend some time interacting with each other. We are thankful for this setting, Lord, and we're thankful for the work that you did that brought us together. Lord, we do have some things we want to pray for. We think of our group in the Dominican Republic this week. Um, We pray that they are able to be useful to the church they're partnering with. We pray that you not only help them do good ministry for the people that they're serving, but in their experience, you may be at work in their hearts to bring about change and transformation that is needed. We want to lift up to you this morning, Sherry and Claire Bauer as they have had a hard week in and out of the hospital with varying um, health problems. We do pray, Lord, that you continue to provide support from their church family, but also that you help the doctors and nurses provide counsel as they um, seek to come up with the answers they need. I pray today that you help us have an open mind to your word, and we ask all of this in your name. Amen. All right, I've got a question for everyone. Who has ever felt lonely? You're like, ah, James, you're supposed to start your sermon interesting and fun, not depressing. But yeah, lift your hands a little higher. Who has ever felt, most of us have felt lonely. In fact, um, loneliness is becoming one of the biggest issues in our world today. And in 2018, the UK did something that made the rest of the world turn its head. It appointed its first ever loneliness minister minister for loneliness. The then Prime Minister, Theresa May, she appointed Terry Crouch to tackle what they called the sad reality of modern life. And what they meant by that phrase is that we seem to be growing increasingly lonely and disconnected from each other. Isn't that a horrible phrase, the sad reality of modern life? Running up to this appointment of the loneliness minister, a bunch of research had come out um, showing just the intense prevalence of loneliness in the Western world. In fact, the Harvard Business Review did a survey of about 1,000 people, and what they found is that 36% of people who responded said that they felt lonely frequently or almost all of the time. And if you take the set of respondents who were between 18 and 25, 61% claimed that they felt lonely frequently or almost always. Those are horrible numbers, aren't they? In this research, it found that people who were chronically lonely, they were more likely to miss work. They were more likely to suffer from sleep deprivation. They didn't heal from sickness or injury as quickly. And in fact, when you compare people who are health conscious, like they prefer salads to pizza, but are lonely, when you compare health-conscious but lonely people to those who are less health-conscious but had vibrant relationships, the people who were less health-conscious tended to have a longer lifespan and were happier than those who were health-conscious but lonely. 
which confirms something that I've always known to be true, that it's better to eat Twinkies with friends than to eat Twinkies, or not eat Twinkies, and be alone. Can I get an amen? Now, here's the kicker with all all this. All this research was getting done prior to 2020, which means that loneliness was impacting us at high levels far before we were asked to stay home and isolate ourselves from the people that we were closest to. And that during the pandemic, it added fuel to the already burning flames of loneliness that were present in the world. Our tagline for this series really gets at this idea, which is that a little bit of solitude can be beneficial. We all need a little bit of alone time to process and grow, but ongoing isolation will starve our souls. We are better together. Now, when we read the Bible, it actually casts a lot of light onto this issue of loneliness and community because it shows us that we, as humans, are created for community. Check out this passage. This is Genesis chapter 2. And in this passage, God has just created Adam, and every part of creation up until this point has been described as being very good. But God looks at Adam, and this is what He says. The Lord God said, "'It is not good for the man to be alone.'" I will make a helper suitable for him. So God, he's looking at all of his creation. He sees the land, the animals, the skies, the trees, his garden. And then he looks at this man and basically says, you know what? The one thing that's not right here is that this man is alone. Then it goes on to say, now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all of the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all of the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all of the wild animals. This is super weird, to be honest. Think about what's what's happening here. God says, hey, it's not good for Adam to be alone. So he parades all of the other living creatures in front of Adam for him to interact with them. You know, he's petting them, he's naming them, he's trying to not get bit by the mean ones. And what becomes obvious is that none of those creatures can fill the void that exists for Adam. Cats and dogs and cows are great, but they just can't seem to fill the need that we have for relationships. And that's why our passage says, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Now, we've got to ask a question here. If God is all-knowing, and God is wise, and if He designed and created Adam, wouldn't he already know that none of the animals were going to be a suitable companion for him? After all, didn't God create this relational need that Adam has? And the answer to that is, yes, of course God already knew. But the point of this exercise wasn't so that God could realize that none of the animals would be sufficient companions. The point of the exercise was for us, the reader, to understand that humans have been designed with a very unique and specific relational need, a need that cannot be met by anything other than other humans. Check this out. This is what comes next. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of, him, out of the man and he brought her to the man. 
Now, normally when we read this, we jump immediately to concepts of marriage and sexuality, but it's really important here to recognize that the underlying intention here is not to make the statement that every human is designed for a marriage relationship. Rather, the relationship between the man and the woman here is supposed to represent this bigger idea that humans are not meant to be alone. And by creating Eve to be partnered with Adam, God is showing what community can be, and He's also creating a way to make more humans to populate the earth so that that type of community can exist. And this is how God describes, this is how Genesis describes that ideal relationship that Adam and Eve are demonstrating. It says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Again, it's really easy to sexualize this, but the author here, he's using the image of two married people to illustrate the bigger human relationship. And when it says that they were naked, that concept of nakedness, it was being used to describe the way that they relate to each other. You see, nakedness, it has to do with vulnerability. It's about being your entire self in front of someone else. When I was a teenager, um, I used to play the drums in our church worship band. Every Saturday night before I'd play, I would have the same dream, that I would show up to church in the morning to play the drums, and I forgot to wear my shirt. Every, every night before I had to play the drums, show up, don't have my shirt, I would search the entire church. I'd be like opening drawers, looking for a shirt. For some reason, no shirts existed in the church. There's got to be a, church, or a shirt in every church. I mean, there's like 50 in the office right now. But I could not find any shirt to wear, so I have to get up there and play the whole worship service shirtless. And I got to tell you, playing shirtless in front of a church is very different than playing shirtless as a rock star. Just... You know, anyone ever had a dream like that? You show up to work without your pants, show up to church without a shirt. It's, yeah, it's pretty common for us to have that. And for me, this dream was, was really symbolic because there are things that we just don't want people to see about us. And in my dream, it was my bare chest. And being forced to go up in front of all the church people and expose the very things that I didn't want them to see it created shame and anxiety. The idea here in Genesis of being naked and not ashamed, it's this idea of having every part of you in view, every part of you open for the world to see, but instead of creating shame and anxiety, it created closeness. The idea of being naked and ashamed is that idea that we are vulnerable with each other that we have the types of relationships that we actually crave, where we are known and where we know other people, where we can be who we really are and not feel shame, rejection, judgment, discomfort, but instead find acceptance and intimacy. The point here is that the relationship that existed between Adam and Eve, it was idyllic. It highlights what we were created to have. It is the type of relationship many of us crave, just one that seems right. Basically, in Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God created these humans to exist in this type of meaningful relationship. We are built from the ground up to be meaningfully and deeply connected to each other. 
Now, I don't think anything illustrates this idea better than the TV show Alone. Any Alone fans out there? We got, I was hoping for a little bit better hand-raising than that. Oh, okay, that's all right. It's a great show. It's on Netflix. Alone. So, since none of you have seen it and my illustration is going to fall flat, let me describe to you what happens in Alone. <laughs> so, the premise of the show is that the producers, they gather up a whole bunch of self-proclaimed survival experts who are then sent out all by themselves, like, not all by themselves together, all by themselves, each one of them alone, to see who can survive in the primitive wilderness by themselves. And they get to choose like 10 primitive items they take with them. And the goal is for them to use those 10 primitive items to survive as long as they can all by themselves. And the last one standing wins a bunch of money. Not really our ideal version of a vacation, is it? What's kind of crazy about the show is that the same thing happens in every season. In the first week or two, you have all of these contestants drop out because they just clearly don't have what it takes. They're like, my shelter burned down. I got bit by a squirrel and I might have rabies. Like all this stuff happens where it's clear they just shouldn't be out there in the first place. But then you get like 30 or 40 days in and there are a set of contestants who have proved they've got what it takes. They're hunting and they're fishing and they're providing food. They've got a great shelter. They have the technical skills to survive. But at that 30 or 40 day mark, something really weird starts to happen to them. They start talking to themselves in a way that seems like a little bit crazy. One guy, they have to carry cameras around with them. One guy named his camera Chad, and he'd like set it down. And he'd be like, well, today, Chad, you know, you're starting to wonder about him. You got all these macho, tough guys who weep like four or five times a day for no apparent reason. They're just sitting there in their shelter crying to themselves. And they start to have all of these deep and troubling reflections about how many relationships they've messed up and how they want to change their lives. And what's happening is that they are suffering the terrible emotional effects of isolation. And because of that isolation, they start dropping out of the show. And they're not quitting because they can't survive. They're quitting because they can't stand being alone. Why? Because humans are not created for isolation. We are created for community. We're designed for it, which means that every single one of us, whether we feel it or not, has a deep need, often an intense craving to be connected to other people in a meaningful way. So here's the point. Whether you believe it from Genesis 1 and 2 or whether you believe it from the show alone, we are better together in community. Now, there's a problem, though. Many of us struggle to build the type of community that we're meant for, which is evidenced by the fact that we live in a world where it's easier to stay connected than it has ever been. We've got phones and Facebook and FaceTime and email. We're literally a drive, a phone call, or a plane ride away from every other person who is currently alive on this planet. Yet we, as modern Westerners, are amongst the loneliest people who have ever lived on planet Earth. Why is that? 
Well, this is part of what makes the creation narrative in Genesis so compelling. Because just like it shows us how we are created for relationships, it also shows us how we broke the very social fabric of humanity and now struggle to find the type of community that we were built for. In Genesis chapter 3, we end up seeing the woman walking in the garden that God provided her with, and she encounters this tempting being, the serpent. This is what it says. Now the serpent said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So what happens here? Well, God had given Adam and Eve pretty much free reign over the entire Garden of Eden with one stipulation. He didn't want them to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent figure shows up in the story and tries to convince Eve that this one rule exists because God is just trying to keep her from reaching her full potential. And if she eats the fruit that God has forbidden, she will become like God discovering her true godlike self. So what does she do? She eats the fruit, and then so does Adam. And it says in verse 7, And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. What's interesting here is that the first consequence that they face after turning away from God is that the bliss they had of being vulnerable with each other goes away. All of a sudden, they find themselves trying to cover parts of their existence from each other. The vulnerability that they shared in that relationship disappears. And then it says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden, But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. (laughs) Typical dudes. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. No comment there. (laughs) The second consequence we see here is that tension and strife are introduced into their relationship. They're all of a sudden afraid of God. She made me do it. The serpent tricked me. There's blaming. There's conflict. And their idyllic relationship is quickly unraveling. So God, after confronting what has happened, He takes some time to explain to them what the consequences of their actions are going to look like. And to the woman, He said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. 
with painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. In other words, this task of building deep relational webs by populating the earth, it's going to be painful. It's going to be full of danger. And the relationships that men have with women will no longer be so clear-cut. You are going to struggle with questions over equality, domination, and the sexual desire that exists, instead of being good and amazing, it's going to start to cause all sorts of problems in your relationships. And then he said to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you'll eat food from all of it, all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for from dust you are, and from dust you shall return. Basically, you're going to work hard all the days of your life, and then you're going to die. And instead of work being something that empowers relationships, it's going to interfere with them. In short, what's happening here is that when Adam and Eve turned from God, it fractured the way that relationships were meant to be had. Now, this is confusing sometimes because we think, yeah, how would turning away from God fracture the relationships that we had with each other? Now, during first service, I got really excited here and knocked over this um, mic stand. It was very embarrassing. I'm going to try not to do that here. But that question, why would breaking the relationship with God impact our relationship with each other? And I like to think of this like a three-legged stool. FYI, when I bought this stool on the internet, I thought it was much taller. It is not. (laughs) But bear with me. You see, one leg on this stool is God. One leg on this stool is you. One leg on this stool is the relationship that you have with others. They are meant to be intricately intertwined. And if you remove one of the legs, the God leg, the stool can no longer support itself. The relationship between humans is totally connected and dependent to our relationship with God. And so if we fracture the relationship with God, it has a tremendous impact on our relationship with each other. By turning away from God, Adam and Eve removed the God leg from the stool, and by doing so, the entire stool of human relationships collapsed. And the result was human relationships became broken. Now, here's what you can take away from all this. We crave Genesis 1 and 2 relationships. We want to know people. We want to be known. We want to have vulnerability without shame. The problem is we live in a Genesis 3 world, which means that we're often looking for those deep connections, but instead of finding them, we often find broken, challenging, difficult relationships that lead to isolation. They can lead to isolation in the sense that we never really feel like we can be honest and vulnerable with other people, or isolation in the sense that we avoid deep relationships because of the way our deep relationships have gone in the past, or isolation in the sense that we're afraid of relationships and never give any community enough time and attention to blossom into the types of community that it's meant to be. We crave good community, but we often struggle to find it. Depressed yet? (laughs) Here's the good news. 
Jesus changes everything. Through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has made a way to restore many of the things that our turn from God has destroyed. If you think about my stool illustration, when Adam and Eve turned from God, it knocked out the God leg, which destabilized the rest of the relationships. But when we place our trust in Jesus, He restores our relationship with God. And not only that, but He places us into a new family. The scriptural way of talking about this is adoption. When we place our faith in Christ, Jesus adopts us into the family of God and gives us the community of all of the other brothers and sisters, the sons and daughters of God. We call that the church. And Jesus takes this church, as broken as it is, and He helps teach us to live into community in the way that we are created to live into it. Now, we are still broken, and the community that we're given will never be perfect. We all know that, and we will never completely meet that Genesis 1 and 2 craving that we have. But while it's not perfect, it is still good. And more than that, it is still good for us. Because like we said earlier, we are created to be better together in community. And through Jesus, our relationship is restored with God and we're placed into a community where we are meant to strive to live the way God meant His people to live together. In Jesus, we have a chance to pursue the type of community that we are created for. But there's one big caveat. There is a degree of intentionality that we have to apply to community to get out of it what Jesus intends for us. In fact, a whole bunch of the New Testament was written to these early communities of Jesus' followers to help them understand how to intentionally live into this new community. In fact, most of the New Testament epistles are full of this kind of teaching. And today, we're going to look briefly. I know you're like, isn't the sermon over at this point? Wasn't like that conclusion? It's not. Sorry. Uh, well, I got you here, you know. But we are... <laughs> Oh, man. We are going to briefly look at a quick passage that gives us three quick points that help us pursue community in a way that helps us try and do it the right way. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. And what we're going to see is that the Apostle Paul reminds us to look for community in the right places, pursue the right priorities in community, and keep the right perspective in community. So let's check out this passage. This is Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. It's important to know that this was written to a group of Christians. It's easy to read this like this was written to you as an individual. This was written to a group of people who were living life together. And this is what it says. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of His glorious riches, He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep 
is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all fullness of God. Then just skipping a couple verses forward to chapter 4, verse, verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I love that passage. Now, the first thing I want us to see here, it's actually not explicitly stated in the text. Rather, it's something that was true about the church in Ephesus and therefore underlies everything that Paul says, and that is that the Christians in Ephesus were placing a high priority on being together in community. We do see this in some of the language here. For example, every use of the word you in this passage is actually plural. Paul's not talking to any one individual. He's saying you all. He's talking to a group of Christians who are living together. But bigger than that, what we see in the book of Acts, and this is also true about what Acts says about the church in Ephesus, is that the early Christians were bonded together. They met together during the week, sometimes daily before work, to study and pray. They met in the synagogues and in homes. They served each other. They consulted each other and their leaders looking for wisdom. The connectedness of the early Christians, it was extremely high. Now, I don't want to outline too much how this is different from the way that we emphasize community because my goal here, I don't want to shame us into doing anything. We live in a very different context than they did. But there is a difference between the way that they prioritize community and the way that we tend to show up to church two to three times a month into this building where we listen to some songs, hear a message, shake hands, chit-chat for 10 minutes, and then go home. Now, I have an illustration to lighten that last sentence. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, actually, I just lied. It does not lighten it at all, and I apologize. Uh, but I do think the best way to describe this is by using a Lego block illustration. We all have a relational capacity similar to the way that this Lego block only has a certain amount of pegs on it, the pegs being the places that you attach other Legos. This Lego block has eight pegs. So, maybe you are married and you have kids and you rightly prioritize your spouse and family. Let's say that that's half of your relational capacity. That means half of the pegs on your Lego block are filled. Then you've got your work friends that you work with every day and maybe go out with a couple times a month to play golf or something like that. Let's say that's another two of your relational Lego pegs filled up. Then you've got your extended family. Maybe that's another peg. Then you've got your friends from your kid's school. Maybe that's another peg. And then maybe you've got your church growth group friends. See how we are quickly getting to the place where we are trying to squeeze more relationships into a place that there simply is not space for them. What happens when you try to have more relationships than what you have relational capacity for? Yeah. I'm going to mention to you two. One, you end up hurting existing relationships because they get deprioritized as you make room for others. 
We see this happen with families all the time. Or you end up with a ton of superficial relationships because you haven't given any of your relationships the bandwidth they need to become something more. Paul's underlying assumption here would be that you are trying to give your Christian community enough bandwidth that you will experience the spiritual and emotional benefits that you're meant to experience from it. If you can barely find one peg on your Lego block for church community, you shouldn't expect it to provide deep relationships. Now, the point here is to not think that you can have only church friends, not saying that at all. The point is to realize that we have to look for community in the right place, the church. And if we aren't giving enough relational bandwidth in that area, we're going to find that we're not gaining the relationships that we're meant to. Now, every life stage is different. Please don't be like, oh my gosh, I feel so burdened by this. We understand that, that at different points in time, you have different amounts of time. But it doesn't change the fact here. We have to give enough bandwidth to our church community if we want to experience the relationships it's supposed to provide. Check out these verses. This is starting in verse 6. Paul writes, I pray, sorry, verse 16, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Remember, Paul is writing to a group of Christians, and his prayer for them as a community, not as individual people, is that together they may grow to understand how amazing the love of Jesus is. Paul is trying to make sure that we approach community with the right priorities in mind. Most of the time, we have a bunch of different priorities when we seek out com community. Some people just want to have fun. Some people are looking for that special one to become their spouse. Some people are trying to find other parents that they can walk through life with. Other people are looking for emotional support. What Paul wants to make sure is that when it comes to Christian community, if you are looking for these things, that they don't overshadow what needs to be the top priority. Helping each other understand the love of Christ. Now, this is genius because if we think about some of those other priorities that we emphasize in community, fun, romantic interest, emotional support, if we let those things become the top priority, they actually end up ruining our relationships. If all I'm looking for is people to have fun with, what happens if those people don't share all of my interests or find the same things fun as I do? Then I'm left to either be disappointed at the lack of fun I'm having, or I jump from place to place to place looking for something that's often fleeting, and I end up feeling isolated. Or if all I'm looking for is that cute boy or cute girl that I want to make my special person, I'm going to end up running off people because they start to realize that all I'm interested in is finding the one and not finding genuine community. 
Or if all I'm looking for is emotional support, man, you're going to burn the people out that are around you. And you're going to feel isolated again because of the way that people avoid you. However, if our priority is knowing God, it not only drives us together as we try and learn about Him, but it helps us course correct on these other priorities. It's not that we don't want to find ways to have fun or support each other's emotional needs or, um, you know, help you find a spouse if that's what you're into. We want to have those things happen. But when God is our top priority, it helps us keep all of those other things in their rightful place so that community can become deep and lasting. It's that whole stool illustration. When we have the God leg in its place, it helps support the other parts of the community. Finally, Paul says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Paul wants to make sure that we approach community with the right perspective. And that perspective is this. People are challenging. People are annoying. People sometimes do things that hurt us. And the correct response is not to run to a different community or to avoid relationships altogether. It is to strive to be humble, patient, and bear with one another. Basically, Paul is saying, to develop into deep community, you got to learn to put up with each other. This does two things for us that are extremely important. First, it allows us to put in the necessary time to actually build deep relationships because no deep relationship has ever been formed without a certain amount of putting up with other people. Can I get an amen with that? Because everyone does dumb stuff. If our response to the brokenness of others is to run away from them, we rob ourselves the opportunity to build deep relationships. And I'll speak just from my perspective here. I'm still growing in my wisdom and my maturity. I recognize I've got a long way to go. And if you allow my immaturity or the dumb offensive things that sometimes I say or the uninformed opinions that I often hold to keep you from growing in relationship with me, then I am in trouble. Because how am I ever supposed to grow in wisdom or maturity or understanding if the very things that I need to grow in are causing you to run away from me? This is another thing for us too, though. When we choose to be humble and gentle and patient and bear with one another, we're actually acting in a way that shows the world what the love of God is like. Because what does Romans 5 say? It says, God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If we put this in non-religious terms, it would sound like this. That Jesus sought to be deeply connected to us, even though our thoughts, actions, and deeds were sometimes repulsive to Him. If you are looking for community and you are just looking for people who look like you, act like you, dress like you, never offend you, do all the things that you want to do, you're never going to find it. But you're also 
robbing yourself of the very type of community that God intends for us and the type of community that reflects God's love to the rest of the world. We are created for community. And through Jesus, our relationship with God is restored and we're placed into a community where we can try to live the way that God wants His people to live together. But to have that type of community, we've got to look for it in the right place. We've got to pursue it with the right priorities. And we've got to make sure that we keep the right kind of perspective. Now, here's where the rubber hits the road. We at Faith Covenant Church, we want you to have this type of community. We think you were made for it. We want to be a place where this happens. But you've got to understand this. We can create an environment for community to happen, but each person has a large amount of responsibility in working to establish community for themselves. So let me encourage you to do three things. First of all, if you're not plugged into a growth group, please get involved in one. Today is a great time to sign up for one. We've got people at the community station out back who will help you navigate how to get plugged in. But here's the deal with a growth group. This setting is awesome. We sing songs. We listen to the Word. We get to relate a little bit to each other, and we get to be inspired to live for Jesus. But it's really hard to build deep community with 150 other people standing around and the loudness of the music happening. But in a growth group, you get 8, 10, 12 other people and then are given an opportunity to actually get to know them more deeply. But, and this is the second thing that's really important, you won't form community unless you work at forming community. This is one of the hardest things for adults. You know, when you were a kid, your parent could like drop you off in a room full of other kids and they'd come back two hours later and you'd be like, this is my best friend, Fred. You know, you just like made friendships so easily. But then when you became an adult, you're like, why is this so hard to make friends? Anyone, you know what I'm talking about? Something happened when we got old that we forgot how to build relationships. And so let me encourage you, you got to do the things that are necessary to build relationships with people. Things like trying to find a little time to spend with folks, or calling people in your growth group just to check in and see how they're doing, or sharing things about your life and asking questions about theirs. We can try and bring you together, but at a point, a lot of community building rests on you. So get in a growth group, find a few people in that group, and start to intentionally build relationships call them, text them, become friends on social media, ask questions about their lives, maybe grab dinner, go to one of those crazy places where you throw axes at the wall, because you can learn a lot about a person by the way they throw an axe at a wall. <laughs> you got to do the work to build community. And then finally, this is my third suggestion, and this is one of the hardest things for us. You got to put in the time. We often underestimate the amount of time it takes as an adult, to build relationships with other people, especially when we're only able, of giving a f able to give a few hours a week to other folks. Once you decide to start intentionally building relationships, and once you start taking the steps to do so, you've got to give it a lot of time. I'm not talking like four weeks. I'm talking like a year, two years. Relationships take a lot of time for us to build.
Now, I recognize sometimes when you get into a growth group, you're like, this is a bad fit for me. And uh, <laughs> we know that happens. We're not, we're not uh, unaware of that fact. So if you've tried to give it a little time and you've tried to build some relationships and you're like, this just isn't a good fit, Pastor James, let me know. We will try and find you a different place where you can uh, do those things as well. But you got to remember, a lot of it rests on you. You got to put in the work and you've got to give it some time. Church, we're created for community. Jesus helps us build the right kind of community. So let's work at building it together.